welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So this morning we have Eric Jesperson speaking with us. Eric is Director of Social Transformation with his wife Rebecca. They do an extraordinary job, as many of you know. They uh, built the lighthouse in Woking and they are doing extraordinary things in Guildford as well. So why don't you give him a warm welcome as he comes to speak to us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Wonderful to be here with you this morning. We are on week two of a series called The Way of the King, exploring the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible with you in a hard copy format or electronic, would you open to Matthew chapter 5? The words of Jesus known to us as the Sermon on the Mount are universally regarded by scholars and theologians and philosophers of all religions and none to be some of the most significant and revolutionary words ever spoken. Just some examples. Uh, The French writer André Gide said, there is more light in Christ's words than in any other human words. Philip Schaff wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. The historian Herbert Muller said, the essential teachings of Jesus were literally revolutionary and will always remain so if they are taken seriously. H.G. Wells wrote, I am an historian, not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. An anonymous author wrote, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from those men who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Even the Hindu guru, Mahatma Gandhi, said, your life will be incomplete unless you reverentially study the teachings of Jesus. Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. 
Not no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. So you get the idea. This is significant stuff we're looking at. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are revolutionary. They were revolutionary when they were first spoken, and they remain revolutionary now. And if you've grown up around church, some of the raw impact of these words may be reduced just through familiarity. But when we take time with these words, we read them. We allow these words to read us. They are transformational. Last week, Adam Heather very helpfully set the context for these words on the Sermon on the Mount. And the context is the kingdom of God, Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. And you can listen to that message online, and you can use the Emmaus Way website to study it in groups. But Adam helped us understand that the Sermon on the Mount is, is not just a collection of nice thoughts on how to live a happy life, you know, that you can put on a fridge magnet or a t-shirt. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. It is saying the kingdom of God is here around you. Here is what it looks like. Here is how you access it. Here is how you live in it. And so as Christians and followers of Jesus, these words are foundational to our understanding of life in God's kingdom. They orientate us. They help us locate ourselves within the kingdom of God. And they lead us on in the kingdom of God. And that's where Jesus starts his sermon in Matthew chapter 5 and where we start today. Before leading us onward out, out to live a, king, a countercultural kingdom life through passionate prayer and radical forgiveness and loving our enemies and all that, Jesus locates us on the kingdom map. He says, you are here. You know those helpful maps you have in a town that you haven't been to before when you're out in a country walk and, and there's an arrow drawn on the map that says, you are here. And from that, we kind of locate ourselves. That's what Jesus does at the beginning of his talk. He draws an arrow to where we are. So let's see where the arrow is pointing. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens his kingdom manifesto 
by locating us on the map. And this is what he says. There you are. I see you. Except, he doesn't use the most exciting words to identify us. He doesn't say, I see you there, the beautiful, the successful, the powerful, the winners. No, he says, I see you there, the poor, the sad, the powerless, the desperate. You might think, Jesus, that's kind of rude. You know, we live in Surrey. Many of us are not on the breadline. We've managed to medicate away our sadness. We've figured out how to climb up to positions of power in our society. We've managed to subdue our nagging deepest longings with retail therapy and wine and Netflix. And Jesus just says again, yes. I see you there, poor, sad, powerless, desperate. My kingdom is for you. Jesus opens his manifesto by declaring who the blessing of the kingdom is aimed at. And thankfully, the blessing is aimed at us. But it's aimed at us in our poverty, our grief, our weakness, our desperation. And it reaches us only when we recognize ourselves in those things. And to some, this is incredibly good news. To others, it's simply confusing and disappointing. To some, it's good news. Because poor, sad, powerless, desperate is exactly how we feel. And so arriving at Jesus' feet and hearing him say these words means rescue, means comfort, means relief, means hope. To others, it's confusing and disappointing because parents and education and career and culture have taught us exactly the opposite. They've taught us what Richard Raw calls the winner's script, a life script that many of us are given, which basically says that life is a series of progressive steps upwards, a series of achievements towards winning at life. And therefore, to receive the blessing means only to succeed. To get the sports trophy, to get the first class degree, to get the dream house, to get the perfect family, to get the brilliant career, to get the good health, to get the flowing wealth, to get the holiday in the sun, the comfortable retirement, that is blessing. And with this script, blessing comes to the fit, to the intelligent, to the resourceful, to the winsome, to the healthy, to the strong, to the good-looking, to the connected. And the strategy in this winner's script is to ruthlessly 
avoid poverty and need, to avoid pain and loss, to avoid weakness and vulnerability, to avoid dependence and desperation. Those are all missteps on the upward trajectory towards the blessing of winning at life. So to have Jesus come along and invite us into his kingdom's blessing by personally identifying ourselves as poor, mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty is surely nothing short of irritating. But this is the upside-down, counterintuitive, countercultural way of the king. Liv Thomas put it this way. Our popular Western culture insists that to be first is to be best. All who do not attain excellence or domination are considered inadequate. It is here that the gospel kicks in and insists that inadequacy is the truth about us all. Let me repeat that. The gospel insists that inadequacy is the truth about us all. In the bright and exposing light of God's truth, we are all inadequate. Behind the facade of worldly success, we are all desperately poor in spirit. Behind the mask of a winner's grin is the aching grief caused by the losses that all humans experience. We may try to push it away, ignore it, keep a stiff upper lip, but Jesus knows it's there. Beyond the outward displays of power and strength, there is often a frightened child who feels powerless over their insecurities and fears. And Jesus knows. Despite endless efforts to fill our every need with food or fashion or entertainment, there are things within us that we deeply hunger and thirst for, things we want to be right, to be set right and just aren't. And Jesus sees that, and he offers to fill us if we'll only be honest about it. People who approach the kingdom of God without embracing a posture of poverty and dependence, are usually just looking for another way to advance their winner's script, wanting Jesus to be like a handy app on their phone or a life hack that, that will just help them advance their way towards their goal of being successful, of winning at life. But those who come honestly, recognizing themselves in these statements of Jesus, in these Beatitudes, are the ones who truly receive the blessing that Jesus promises. Heidi Baker writes this, Poor in spirit is a posturing of the heart. 
rather than an economic position. From Harvard to Mozambique, God visits those who want him. I believe Jesus meant that poor in spirit is a posturing of the heart where one is wholly given, fully yielded, completely desperate, and totally dependent on God alone. The Lord wants to cause even the rich and the middle class to be poor in spirit and know they are in total need of him. I believe being poor in spirit is a choice, a decision we all have to make to go lower still, be fully dependent on the one who is always dependable. I like what Jared Kelly writes. He says, like a snooker table with one leg shorter than the rest, God's blessing has a bias towards the humble poor. There is a bias towards the poor because it is only in this that the gospel announcement can truly be for all. The principle is simple. The poor have no means of their own to become rich, nor the powerless to gain power. But the rich and powerful have within themselves the possibility of becoming poor. Salvation offered only to winners will by definition exclude many. Only salvation offered to losers, whether by circumstance or choice, can be described as comprehensive. He says there is nothing you don't have that can bar you from entry to the kingdom. Only the things you have might keep you out. The Apostle Paul was living the winner's script when he first encountered Jesus. Paul explains in Philippians 3 how he was born into a prestigious family, was well-raised, went to the right school, had the best mentor, worked hard, was spiritually zealous, on track towards great things. But he came to realize had this revelation that it was his pride and confidence in those very things that might limit him from entering the kingdom blessing. And so he writes these amazing words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider a loss... Um, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul made the choice to take off all that stuff and just set it down, lay it down not be defined by those things, and not try and enter the kingdom with those things as his measures, as his way in. Paul made the choice to regard his privilege and achievement as of no value in earning the kingdom blessing. He decided to receive it simply as a gift. A rich man came to Jesus once, also living the winner's script, wanting to receive the kingdom blessing through his wealth, through his spiritual zeal. 
And Jesus challenged him on that. And in response, Jesus talked about getting into the kingdom as being like someone, a camel going through the eye of the needle. And some commentators suggest that the eye of the needle was the name of a very, very small gate in the city wall that was opened after dark when the big main gates were shut. And there was just this tiny gate that you could get through into the city. And if you turned up late to the city after dark with a camel loaded with goods, saddled up and loaded with all your possessions, it would be impossible to get through the eye of the needle, this small gate, without first taking off all the possessions, taking off everything, unpacking it, taking it even off the saddle, and squeezing the camel through the gate. And I, whether that's historically accurate or not, I think it's a, a wonderful visual image for what it means to enter into the city of God's kingdom and blessing. It's that God invites us, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount invites us to just unburden us of all that baggage, to take off all that stuff and say the thing that's going to get you in is just to remove all that external stuff. It sets us free. And the reality, I think, is that when we get over the discomfort of that process, it is actually incredibly liberating. There is an amazing freedom in not having to bring anything to God. To simply come as you are. And I'm sure like me, you've had moments in your life where not by choice but by circumstance, You've experienced significant losses. Things that have come your way that haven't been part of that winner's script that have just sideswiped you. Incredible losses that have been so hard to process. And yet, they've had the effect of stripping everything else away. All the stuff that seemed so important you know, the better house we must acquire and the better car and the better job and the better this and that that seemed so important suddenly became irrelevant. And it focused us in on what was truly important. And there was a kind of liberty, a setting free that happened as we processed that, as we let go. That's why... I like to call the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes, postures of the heart that position us to freely receive the kingdom of God. How do we receive the kingdom blessing that Jesus longs to give us? First, we repent, because the kingdom is at hand. It's within reach, it's here, it's to be received. And repent means to change our mindset, to adjust the posture of our heart. We empty ourselves, we empty our hands, and we come with a posture that's marked by humility and dependence. We embrace the vulnerability of not having all the right answers, not even knowing all the right questions. 
We remove the masks of pride and power and control. We bravely accept our failures, our setbacks, our losses, knowing that none of these can threaten our position of blessing in the kingdom of God. And we invite God himself to comfort, to fill, to show us his mercy, to show us his face, to give us his kingdom. So as we prepare to respond, I want to finish with the loose modern interpretation of the Beatitudes written by John Mark Comer. John Mark is a, a brilliant teacher and pastor from Portland, Oregon in the States, and he's actually going to be with us at Wildfires in just a few months' time. I'm really excited by that. As I read this, listen with an open heart and try to locate yourself on the map. See if you can recognize yourself in any of these words. Bring yourself before Jesus in openness and vulnerability. And Bill's going to come up and, uh, and just facilitate our response to that. So uh, maybe right now you might want to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and listen as I read these words. Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed, the underemployed, those on the wrong side of globalization, those without a degree or health insurance, those who are spiritually simple, who really have very little to offer because they are in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, those grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, another miscarriage, the pain of their genogram, the racism of our nation. Because one day God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Blessed are the quiet, the shy, the socially awkward, the uncool, the badly dressed, the people with only six followers on Twitter. Because one day they will be free from the tyranny of what others think of them. And they will take up their role as king and queen over God's world. Blessed are the messed up. Those who just can't get it together. The addict, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those from an abusive home. For they will one day be so full of God's life that they won't know where to put it all. Blessed is the little guy. The people who get stomped on, passed over, and they don't fight violence with violence. One day, they will get all that mercy back with interest. Blessed are those who want nothing to do with our country's wars, have violence in the name of democracy and freedom, but who know the true source of peace and prosperity isn't a gun or an army, and they are willing to suffer to bring a new world to bear. One day in the future, everybody will recognize that they are the most like God. 
Blessed are all the Christians in a post-Christian culture that is hostile to all they believe. Even though they're made fun of, looked down on as stupid and mean and behind the times, they get to share in the cross-shaped life of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Amen.